Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. When we have these relationships with dogs, horses, cats, that there's reflection going on all the time. That basically, if we want to know how we are doing, we just need to look at how's our dog doing. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Hello, this is Bob Bach. Welcome to another conversation in our series of segments in the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Today's guest is Dan Van Buskirk, who is joining us from his home in Milwaukee. Hello again, Dan. Hi, Bob. Well, Dan is a former recon Marine and Vietnam veteran who spoke with us in an earlier segment regarding his experiences before, during, and after deployment. If you haven't heard that conversation, I'd encourage you to do so. One of the things Dan talked to us about was his involvement with veterans outreach and the role it's played in his life. For instance, he is co-founder of the group Guitars for Vets and also co-founder of the group Haven, which stands for Hounds and Vets Empowered Now. Dan, first off, I want to ask you about the role that dogs played in your Vietnam experience. Well, the first two months of my combat experience in Vietnam we lost 24 out of 48 men. And basically, teams would go out and just not come back again. So basically, people that I knew would just go out at, say, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'd never see them again. One of the things, we went out fully camouflaged, and we were well-versed well, well in, in hiding and observing all the offshoots of trails coming off the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which ran the length of Laos. And we basically always stayed on the high ground, and we remained hidden, and we observed the trails for uh, infiltration, which we were to interdict to protect the Marines south of us towards Da Nang. So the enemy would try to draw us out, with reconning fire and try to get us to react and try to figure out where we were at. But we were pretty good at hiding out and calling in artillery and airstrikes to stop their infiltration to protect the Marines south of us. But how I discovered dogs was we were put in a situation that we were totally 
unfamiliar with and unprepared for. We were taken out of the high ground and we were put in a very dangerous area called the Rocket Belt, Dodge City, which was an area where the North Vietnamese were rocketing the Da Nang Air Base. And we were the lead element for the infantry going into that area. We walked point for the infantry to find the Vietnamese who were hiding in tunnels on both sides of these trails. And I was, we took heavy fire when we came in in the helicopter for our insert, and it was pretty rough going. When we got out of the helicopter, we, we dropped into this rice paddy water, and, and I got my footing and ran to the opposite bank and threw myself down as we were being shot at, and I landed right next to this German shepherd. And I didn't know what to think of that. <laughs> it was practically face-to-face with this dog that didn't look particularly happy. <laughs> and uh, I'd never worked with a dog before. And he, he and his handler walked out ahead of me on this, on this narrow trail. And we hadn't walked very far. And this dog threw a body block on me that wouldn't let me take another step. I was able to see that it was a booby trap. And I was able to disarm it. And so he, I, I never would have seen it without the dog. And then we kept going. And so I thought, well, this dog knows what the hell's going on. I better pay attention to him. We were just right out in the open, sitting ducks, no cover, no protection whatsoever. So I watched the dog very closely. And when his ears went up, I hit the deck immediately. And an automatic burst flew right over my head where I was standing and bounced off a pagoda behind me. And then he chased the, the North Vietnamese down through a tunnel and brought him out the other side. And then they were setting up an ambush for us when I was able to, we were able to call in a helicopter and get extracted without without losing a life. So he saved my life twice and probably saved our team from a really bad ambush. And I just, I was astonished by the incredible intelligence of a dog to know how to do all these things and to be calm under fire. and. His alertness and just, I was just really, it just, it had a lifelong uh, change on me in regard to dogs. So that was really the start of it. We, we had a few other patrols where we were out in the open like that. And those cold nights out there, sometimes we even slept on the dog. You know, we cuddled up together and, and he was just, uh, he was a very valuable part of our team. And, Dogs back then were treated like a piece of equipment. So regardless of how many lives they saved, they were just left in Vietnam. But the dog that saved my life was one of the only dogs that that was taken out of Vietnam and back to back to the States with his handler. His handler just refused to go home without him and it somehow worked out. That was very very comforting to me. I can imagine. Let's fast forward here, and I'll ask you, why is it that some veterans can make such a strong bond or or a connection with a dog? I mean, in effect, they begin to trust the animal, where in some instances, at least in their life, the trust may be a very difficult thing to do with other people. How does that relationship develop? The relationship between a veteran and a dog, say my dog Folger and I, is almost a sacred experience. What makes it so? When he wants to go outside and, and do things with me, or if he wants something, 
he he's a 70 pound Labrador retriever, so he's not able to get his whole body in my lap anymore. But it put his two front paws in my lap, and he'll look at me with these incredibly beautiful and soulful eyes. I can't even I can't even describe it. It's it's something that that we know that we see in our dogs. This you would do anything for your dog, and they'll do anything for you if if we understand them and love them, give them unconditional love. I care about his nutrition. I care about his sleep. I put a blanket over him at night and talk to him before I go to bed. I care about his exercise. I care about his training. I have to regulate my emotions because when we put our emotions on another person or a dog, it shuts down their limbic system. Well, it's not their limbic system, an X or limbic system and puts them in a fight-or-flight place rather than the frontal cortex, which is a thinking place. So I have to think about how I work with him. I don't I don't want to put stress on him because he's going to think and respond a lot better if I stay calm and handle my emotions and give him a task or an activity to do, especially if he's doing something, which is very seldom, that I'm not happy with. It's important for me to hold my emotions and my expectations in check and just reorientate him to a treat or a task or a play. And then he's in his thinking brain and he's functioning at a high level. But if I were to yell at him and scream no and jerk on his leash and use a choke collar, then his limbic system will be in control of his, of his thinking system and he'll be his body will be shutting down due to stress. He won't be functioning at the high level that German Shepherd functioned in combat. Are there things that have surprised you about your relationship, in this case with your dog Folger, or that you've seen in the relationship between other veterans and their dogs? Yeah, I see veterans that... Uh, Sadly, almost all veterans that come out of combat have a lot of anger and rage because there's nothing right about about war, and they come home with all that. In other words, their limbic system is driving their bus rather than their, their thinking brain. That's where they get in trouble, and that's where a dog gets in trouble. And, and veterans that can learn to control their emotions their responses, control their expectations because they care about their dog, will find out that that's, that's how they overcome the anger and that's how they get in control of their lives. And the dogs teach us that. They teach us to be patient. The dogs are kind of like, well, don't work with me if you're going to be angry and, and upset and emotional because I'm not going to understand anything but your emotions. So you take a time out and you come back to your dog when you've got that handled and then your dog responds really well. We are speaking with a former recon Marine and Vietnam veteran, Dan Van Buskirk. Dan spoke of his life experiences before, during, and after Vietnam in an earlier segment on our podcast. Today, though, we're discussing the remarkable role that service dogs can play in the lives of veterans and the work of the group Haven, which stands for Hounds and Veterans empowered now. I did a bit of reading about Haven and I noticed the uh, phrase clicker training as uh, a strategy for the way in which dogs are trained. And will you tell us, describe that for us, please? 
Well, dogs don't respond so much to all the variations in a in a voice. And a voice also carries emotions behind it, and the dog is going to pick up on the emotions. So if we're yelling no, no, no to our dog, they're not getting they're not getting that verbal no. They're getting the emotion behind it. So a clicker is emotionless. A clicker is the same sound all the time without variation. So it's not it's not based off anger or or excitement or any of that. It's a steady sound that the dog can rely on. So if the dog is exhibiting a behavior that we like, in early in training, we click on that and give the dog a treat and a good boy. So the dog knows that every time that clicker goes off, he's done something right and he's going to get rewarded. It's something that, that sets his brain overnight. And the next day, he's like, oh, well, gee, I know if I sit, I'm going to get that click and a treat. And it's, it's, he's got it. And then after he does it a couple of times, or she does it a couple of times, then we give that, that behavior a cue. And then once they do that several times, we start formulating it to hand signal because dogs are really responsive to our body language more than they are our voice. So he can be... He can be a hundred feet away from me and I can get him to sit, stand, stay, come down, even on a run with just a flick of my hand, the hand signal. And he'll also come around behind me and sit between my legs and look out with just a little flick of my finger. He knows to go around me and come sit between my legs. And that the, the verbal cue for that is cover. That means he's covering me and I'm covering him. If there's any sense of danger in the environment, that's where I want him. And this experience that veterans have with a dog as they train it and after it's been trained, can it become life-altering for them or, or life-changing in some way? Well, that's the only reason I came up with the idea for the program. And then I searched for the perfect trainer, which is Linda. But it wasn't about training the dogs. Most veterans, if they've come through a very physical childhood where <laughs> it's kind of funny. They aren't trained with a clicker. They're trained with hitting and yelling and screaming and punishment and go back and sit at the back of the classroom and school and getting graded with F's and D's when they're being trained punitively. And then they go in the military and it's, it's an extra extreme of that kind of work. Then they need something that teaches them how to communicate with themselves and others, this all positive reinforcement. Because when we come out of trauma and abuse at, a, at an extreme level, like war and childhood in many of us, and we have a very traumatized community here in Milwaukee, we've got an inner parent that tells us we're not enough, we don't get it, we didn't do enough to save, save our team in war, we didn't do enough to save our relationships. This, this negative parent comes out of the beatings we took in the military and childhood. And to counter that, we need to turn away. We need to click out of that, turn away from it, and positively identify us ourselves as unique, wonderful individuals with wonderful spiritual qualities. And that's what we focus on when the negative parent comes in and tells us we're not good enough, we don't get it, we're not going to make it. We come back to that positive idea of ourselves. And when you work with a dog like that, it's amazing how happy, how high-functioning, 
everywhere I take Folger, people comment, oh, what a good dog. Well, he's, I work with the true spiritual identity of Folger. I don't objectify him as a bad child or, or a failure or fat or ugly or all the other things that society can put on us. I identify him as a lovely, spiritual, soulful companion. I find it amazing the uh, you touched on the the subject of adequacy or inadequacy and and really the strong connection there is between inadequacy and and such things as survivor guilt and some of these yes. other stigmas that many veterans experience. I guess astounded is why I find it astounding that a dog could help to diffuse or eventually melt away such a powerful emotion as that whole question of adequacy is with some veterans. But your, your testament to the fact that this is true, it really works. Yeah, for instance, in the old man, the old school that I was raised in, if my dog did something I didn't like, I would jerk on his choke chain. I would try to fix, correct, micromanage talk down to, I wanted him to go into down position. I had him hooked up on a six foot lead. I would just take, and he didn't go down when I asked him to. I would just take my foot and kick the leash hard so he'd hit the deck on his head. That's the old school. The old school was to, if you wanted your dog to take an object, you would choke him with his choke collar till he opened his mouth and took the, took the object. If I want my dog to take something, which is no problem at all, the intelligent thing to do is to offer him something that he likes. Then he gives me the ball and he takes what he likes. It could be a treat, you know, it's usually a treat. If I want him to go into a down position, I might take a couple of days to teach that where it's a step-by-step process. If I want him to, first thing I taught him was at ease, and that means he goes to his blanket and lays down from, from anywhere. If I just say at ease, he goes to his blanket and lays down. Well, you don't get mad at him if he doesn't figure that out the first day. If he even looks at his blanket, he gets to click in a tree. If he puts one paw on it, he gets to click in a tree. And he puts four paws on it. Oh, my God, I'm going to machine gun treats and good boy and praise and, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, oh, the next day he's like, oh, at ease means I get a click in a treat. I'm going to go straight for that blanket. And it's just that quick. Mm-hmm. It's super quick. Because you're not doing anything to put your middleman in there, which is expectation. Expectation destroys beings. Get rid of the expectation. Just go with positive reinforcement, positive action steps, and patience. And the person or the dog will figure it out. I'm going to turn toward wrapping things up here, Dan. Let me, let me ask you this. What are some of the things that have been the most meaningful or maybe a better word would be gratifying to you throughout the time that you've been involved with Haven. When I've seen a vet who has, like most of us do, very chronic PTSD and, you know, they're, they're maybe hurting mentally from that, maybe physically from war wounds, and they have this dog that just loves them and, and they bond with the dog And for the first time, maybe in years, maybe in their life, they discover the joy of a, of a true authentic friendship. You know, maybe the dog goes out on their fishing boat every day with them and goes swimming. Maybe, maybe curls up with them at night. Maybe he's there every morning waiting for them, wagging his tail. Dogs, if, if they don't get in trouble and you're the bearer of all good things to them, 
they're always going to be so happy to see you. It just, it sounds fascinating. Uh, listening to your descriptions and, and these connections that are formed where before there was, um, in many cases, at least such strife and really a kind of a conflict all onto its own. And this work with dogs over some period of time begins to minimize that and, and eventually offer up uh, new vistas for the veteran and, and new ways of living. Well, I, I just want to add to that. In the old man, the old school, if you spank your kid, and I'm not telling parents you know, how to raise their kids. This is an individual. This is my own individual interpretation. If you spank your kid, you're going to get an immediate result. If you spank your dog, you're going to get an immediate result. And it takes patience to just stand there and let your dog spin around in circles and sniff and do all these things. Because what they're actually doing is they're thinking and they're processing and they're trying to figure out what you want them to do. So if you don't micromanage them and correct them and wait for them to make the decision and then reward them, you'll have a dog that thinks on his feet and is happy. An example of that was I was at a friend's house who lives out in the country and I knew that he had lots of acreage for the for Folger to run on. Folger likes to do that, but I knew there were coyotes in the area. So instead of letting Folger run free, when I went into the friend's house, I had Folger go into my truck and sit there at the door open. I didn't have to tell him to stay. He just knew that's where I wanted him. And then at other times, I asked him to come out of the truck and go down the stairs with me in the friend's house, come back out again, rather than taking off like he normally does and running around on his own, he just went over and sat by the truck and waited to go in. In other words, he's been taught his whole life to think and to make choices, and that's been supported. And so he doesn't have to he doesn't have to be micromanaged. He figures things out, and it's just a joy to see the intelligence of another being get activated because they feel loved and trusted. And that's what vets have needed. We need to feel loved and trusted. We're some of the most empathetic people in the world, and we're, and we're very aware of our environment. Give us a chance to show that we can make great decisions. And if we don't understand something right away, let us shape into it. Start with the little steps. Give us one thing at a time, and then we'll get the whole thing. And we'll be very loyal. We will protect you. We will keep you safe and we will make a difference. That takes care of my questions, Dan. Please feel free. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you'd like to add in? I think the biggest thing that I work with Folger every day is to get rid of my own agenda and figure out what he's trying to tell me and to really support him in making choices. I want a dog that's not going to look to me every time a decision has to be made. And that's the same way I feel about my kids and my wife. I want strong beings around me that know that I support their thinking. And we can learn that from working with dogs this way. It's not taught in college. It's not taught anywhere. Dogs are so similar to us in how they think in their brain. And, and by doing these things, we can support success and strength in everyone around us. All right. We've been speaking with former recon Marine and Vietnam veteran Dan Van Buskirk. 
Dan, thanks for joining us again today on the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Thanks, Bob. Take care now. Next, we're going to learn more about Haven and where the organization may be headed, near and long term. Joining us now is Haven's other co founder, Linda Bobbitt of Milwaukee. Linda is a professional dog trainer and has done extensive work with service and therapy dogs. Hello, Linda. Hi, nice to hear from you. Well, and it's great to have you join us. Thank you for doing that. I, sure. First off, I want to find out how it is that you became involved with Haven. How did it start? Well, you know, everything starts with an idea, but it has a story. And I had been in training for quite a period of time in dog training, service dog, therapy dog training, doing things like that. And I, years ago, received information about a seminar that was being held out in California. And it was given the presenter of the training works with Freedom Dogs, which is a service dog organization out in California. And they work with veterans providing service dogs for veterans. And that always, I, I'd hear little pieces of that along the way, you know, and I think, you know, I'd kind of like to investigate that. So I called the person who organized the event to find out more information. And it turned out it was going to be held a week where I absolutely could not get there. And so I asked, well, is there another time this is going to be offered? And what she did is mentioned that the following week, after that seminar, they were going to be holding training actually at Camp Pendleton on the ground there, a four-day session, and she invited me to come out there. And let me just interject that Camp Pendleton is a, a huge United States Marine Corps training base in California. Right, right. It's almost right. like a little town there, you know, <laughs> all, all by itself there. And so I made all my arrangements and, and I went out there. And it was a lot of seeing what, how the dogs are being trained, the handlers, hearing from some of the Marines that are stationed there who are involved with Freedom Dogs. So on day three, they had a panel of Marines, and they, the age range was from about 28 years old to 41 years old, and there were five Marines up there. And it was just a very casual question and answer, question and answer. And then at one point, it took a very, very serious turn. How's that? Yeah, it was not only what daily life is like, but what are triggers for things that are interfering with their lives here. Some, Most of them were still in uniform. There was the 28-year-old young man was not in uniform. He was in regular clothes. But just how their lives have been affected. And then it just got to relating some personal experience. And my feeling was it was as if all the air got sucked out of the room, as if nobody could say anything, nobody, nobody could breathe, until one of the handlers with the dogs released the dog, undid the leash, released the dog. The dog went up, and immediately three hands were on that dog, and everything changed in the room, everything. And that's where I started thinking, okay, there is really something to investigate with dogs and veterans. So this was in May of 2010. <laughs> so I come back to Milwaukee, and I tried for three years to get something going with veterans and dogs. And every place I went, everything, every step I took, nothing happened, nothing worked. So I just thought, you know, I think I have to just let this go. 
And it was once I let it go, I received the email from Dan. Hmm. And he was inquiring about, he found me on a particular trainer's list, wanted to know if I would be interested in working with him in getting something go, something going with veterans and docs. And we had the conversations and we started putting things together. And that's how Haven was born. Now, I understand that there are veterans in your family too. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. And I, I honestly, one of them has had a very big effect on me doing this. That went back even further back than this encounter. Tell us more about that. Who is it and, and what was that impact? Both my father and my brother are Navy, were Navy veterans. My brother, back in, I think it was 1971, enlisted in the Navy at 17 years old. So he went into the Navy. He was in for two years, came out for a bit, and then re-enlisted. And it was sadly during his second enlistment that he committed suicide. And he did it actually on the Great Lakes Naval Base. He was still in the Navy. So there was something, that was 1975. So the interesting thing about this and how so many things are connected is once Dan and I were having the conversation and we were starting to just kind of think about what could we be doing, what could we do, one day I opened a drawer in my house. I was looking for something. And right there was a photo of my brother that should not have been there. It should have been in a different drawer. And but it was a photo it was a photo of my brother when he was on one of his ships. And it just took me by such surprise because again it should not have been there. So then I thought that was just really kind of interesting how that was there. And it got me thinking about him again. And then then there's a song that I always connected to my brother's passing. It was a song that, when I looked at the history of it, it was released in the United States three months prior to the time of his passing. So the song itself, it's by the three degrees, it's called Precious Moments, and it starts out, when will I see you again? So I always associated that with my brother at that time. Hadn't heard that song in a really, really long time. And all of a sudden, I start hearing it. And I start hearing it on different radio stations, regular radio, satellite radio. And it wasn't just that I was hearing the song. It was when I was hearing it. Sometimes I heard it if I was struggling with something, how, how to figure something out, the song came on. I was walking my dogs one night, and it was an evening that, a day that we had a, a funeral service for an aunt. And during the day, my sister and I had been talking about my brother. And so I was walking my dogs, listening to the radio, thinking about him, and the song came on. I was at lunch one day with a veteran in a restaurant. The song came on. So I still hear it. I, I heard the song a couple of weeks ago. So it's still with me. And it, it's almost as if it's reminding me that there is work to be done here and that he's somewhere out there supporting me. Can you tell me what the connection is between this tragic story with regard to your brother and the work that you're doing with veterans and dogs? How, does, how do those two connect? When I think about it, when I look at when that occurred in 1975, I, I don't know a lot about where my brother was, you know, where I, I do have a letter from him from 1971 and their ship was in the Persian Gulf and 
He was saying they were on general quarters because the American ships were being fired on, but never heard anything much more about what was going on in his time there. So I think that veterans were, that the services provided to veterans back in 1975 are very, very different from what is going on right now. And, you know, even from Vietnam, mental health issues were not addressed. And so anybody in the service or a veteran, if there were issues, I I don't know that there were resources for them to be helped. We as a family did not have contact from anybody about that. The only thing was when someone came to the door here at at our home to notify me, and I actually was at work. I wasn't even home. My husband was here. That was about the only contact we had that something had happened. Now, it's very possible my father had gotten contact from the Navy. My brother was more or less living with him prior to his time in service, and actually the few days before he committed suicide, he had spent, it was over the holiday, Christmas holiday, he had spent at my father's home. So it may be my father knew more about things than we did, got more contact. But as far as I know, there was no support given to the family. So I think when, when I look at the age of the veterans who are coming, approaching Haven for the possibility of training a service dog, having a service dog, I just kind of look at them like they, they're so young. They have so many things impacted in their life because of their time and service that hopefully they are seeking treatment. Hopefully they are finding resources. But back then, I don't believe there were any. So never got much detail about it. Mm-hmm. How do the veterans go about choosing the dog that they then begin to work with? How does that occur? When vets approach us, you know, some, sometimes they already have a dog. And if they, if they have a dog, we want to do an interview. We want to do an evaluation. First of all, to see that the dog is young enough to actually pursue training. Ideally, we would like the dog to be no more than two years old, maybe three. But we're going to spend at least a year in training. So we want to look at the working life. And we want to make sure that the dog would basically say to us, if we ask the dog, do you want this job, that the dog would agree that, yes, I would really like that job. <laughs> it's, it's a big thing to ask of a dog. If they don't have a dog, then what we like to do is go into the shelter to look for a dog. And currently we are holding our classes at the Wisconsin Humane Society, and we like to go into the shelter. And it's It's something that it takes time to do to find the right dog. You can almost find the wrong dog very easily. You can see that. It's a little bit more challenging to find the dog that's going to be the right dog. What makes for a right connection, if you will? One of the things is we always want to look at the interaction. You know, how much will a potential dog, potential service dog, come into any person's energy field who will come in and be looking, come in and approach in a very nice, friendly manner. And if they, sometimes if they turn their body a little bit so that they can get that petting on their back, you know, nicely wagging tail, things like that. But we have to look at what is what history is known of this dog. In the shelters here in our area, most of the dogs in there have come from down south. They, they're not local. They come from another, another area. 
So they've made a journey up here. We don't know everything that we would need to know. We're just making guesses. But one of the things I will say to a vet, if we're going into the shelter, before we do that, that they have spent some time thinking about what is it you're looking for in this relationship? What are you looking for? Don't put a face on it. Don't put a breed on it. But when we go into the shelter, watch for the dog who pays attention to you. Just watch for the dog who's trying to make that connection. And if, if it's okay with you, I'd like to just read this little quote. Sure. There is a book written by Marta Williams, and she has titled it, My Animal, Myself. The book covers the idea that when we have these relationships with dogs, horses, cats, that there's reflection going on all the time. That basically, if we want to know how we are doing, we just need to look at how's our dog doing. So she wrote this that I thought was so, so covers that thought right there. She wrote, animals don't judge us by the standards of modern human society. They look into our hearts and see whether there is a pure light there that they can connect to. Once an animal catches onto your heart, he or she won't let go or shut down unless severely betrayed. When I read that, I thought that was really important that she said betrayed and not abused because betrayal goes to the heart. And so what I see going on is for this, this connection to happen. And sometimes you can see the dog has made that decision faster, (laughs) you know, faster than the human end of it. And I very honestly, I have to say that sometimes that connection was so strong that this was going to be the right dog for the vet, but maybe not the right dog for this dog to be a service dog. And so when I look back on that, when it looked like, okay, you know what? It doesn't look like this is a good good role for the dog that you've adopted. But I look at it as, but maybe it's the right dog for the vet right now. And maybe there's something they both need to, to accomplish. And maybe that's all that needs to be done. So it's, it's, it's a challenging role for me to be there and watch it and know that it may not succeed as service dog. But again, maybe this is the dog that really needs. Let me ask you one more thing, Linda, and that is Haven, of course, hounds and veterans empowered now. Where can this group lead? Where can it be sustained? Can it can it grow? What's your opinion on that? Well, when I look at it right now, I'm the only trainer. And I want Haven to grow. I want us to grow into where we're doing more than what we are doing right now. Right now, veterans come to us for training We assist them in the training. They do, you know, they go, they're doing it. At this time, we are not doing it. They are doing it. They're training their own dog. It will take them at at least a year, sometimes 18 months, sometimes longer. They are doing it. What I would like to see happen is that we are able to go into the shelter and maybe find dogs that look suitable for training, adopt them ourselves through Haven. They go into fosters. Maybe we at some point actually have a physical place that becomes Haven that we can house dogs that are in training, have veterans come in, work with the dogs, and eventually then these dogs will go to other veterans. Also looking at 
again, I'm the only trainer, as veterans coming into a training program to become trainers so that at some point down the, down the road, Haven will be completely run by veterans. It's all a veteran-operated organization. And I think that's appropriate. What I really like, what I've observed in training is watching veterans who've gone through, have completed training, they're certified with Haven, forming relationships with either other teams or coming in and just giving advice, answering questions for the teams who are in training. So a way to open up more conversation between all of the vets, you know, um, yeah. You know, I will tell them right in the beginning when we're in class, I can talk to you until tomorrow about dogs. I, I can keep going, but I don't walk your walk. Another veteran walks your walk. And I think those conversations need to happen more. Well, that's very powerful. That's what I like to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's going to go. I, I can see it. I can see it. I just, I'm waiting for the right people and the right opportunities to present themselves as a sign that now we can take another step forward. All right. I think we're going to wrap it up there. I'm going to, in just a moment, say thank you for joining us. But let me offer up the opportunity. If there's anything that I didn't ask you about that, or that you would like to add in, please feel free to do that. Okay. Well, we had talked about the revelation I just had about my father being a World War II vet. Yes. Growing up, we had it was a very difficult relationship at home. And I never understood it. I never understood what was the reason for what I was seeing at home. And it was, it was so difficult and challenging that as an adult, I just decided that relationship was not necessary and there. So at the time that my father died, when he passed, I did not go to his funeral. And just a few weeks ago, for some reason, I was just thinking about him and I looked up his, his obituary online and it had a photo there of his marker his his gravestone. And I was totally shocked because it had his name and below it, it said Navy, which I knew, I knew he was in the Navy, but he was a World War II veteran. And when I looked into the bio, what was written in there of how he belonged to a veteran VFW post, an organization for veterans with disabilities, all of this, I knew none of this. And when I look back on it now, now it explains what I saw. It, it really, really explains what I saw growing up and why he made the choices he did and why his behavior was the way it was. And so that now, it made me feel actually a bit of relief that he wasn't just who I, who, who I saw him to be on there. And so I, I, I really wish I would have known that much sooner. But that would be it. I, I, that to know that my father and my brother are both in the Navy, and for both of them, their time in the Navy had a, a, a big effect on what life developed after that. Linda, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.